With advances in sequencing technology and the cost of sequencing going to zero, according to Moore's law, combined with increasing numbers of genes and gene sets correlating with clinical outcome and response to therapy, is the missing link to truly realizing the promise of precision medicine bioinformatics intelligence? Will a company emerge as the Google or Amazon of cancer informatics? Our guest today is Bruno Laval from the healthcare data company eponymously named Lerval. Welcome to the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast. I'm Joe Anderson. Bruno Lerval, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Joe. Good to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. You have experience across a variety of industries, including banking, finance, uh, programming, artificial intelligence, precision oncology, big data. So tell us a little bit about yourself. How'd you get started? And then how did these experiences evolve into your current company, Lerval? Sure, sure, certainly. And first, can you understand my accent? <laughs> I, think, I think our listeners will do just fine. <laughs> I, I had an accent reduction coach. Uh, at some point when I was working with IBM, that was my first job out of business school. And um, I had an accent reduction coach. And that's a t the first time in my career, Joe, I got fired. My accent reduction coach said, this is not going to work out. So, uh, yes, my, my background has been uh, quite varied. started, as I said, with IBM Consulting. At the time, we were calling what we call Watson now. We call it Deep Blue in uh, the mid and late uh, 90s. And we were already looking at applying deep blue IBM computing to, uh, to healthcare. Uh, I then started a, a bioinformatics company and later on started my, my current business, uh, Laval Group. I'm, I'm based here in San Francisco. One of the things you pride yourself on perhaps is having a uh, remote workforce, which I think certainly may be interesting to many of us in light of this recent COVID pandemic. We were ready for COVID. <laughs> A long time ago, because uh, in our 15-year history, we never had two people in the same office. So we have 125 people, and everybody works from home. Actually, my uh, my number two in the in the company, Dr. Aviva Friedman, I worked with her for 12 years, and I never met her. Our model is uh, how to build teams where you cannot meet in person, and that's what we have done over the years. I guess it kind of forces somewhat of a focus on productivity and maybe minimizes uh, office politics, so to speak. It does. And of course, now the world is going to go through a very fascinating experience with uh, working from home and Zoom and so on. And the first realization is that it's actually not easy to work remotely with people because we're missing all of the visual cues, all of that camaraderie that exists in an actual office. I was talking with someone in France this morning, and he reminded me that uh, that French uh, sentence, uh, loin des yeux, loin du coeur, uh, far from the eyes, far from the heart. So when you don't see someone, when you're not close physically to them, they're less important to you. And so when we work remotely, we have to overcome the trust and the engagement that comes from proximity, from physical proximity. And that's something that I've always been fascinated with. How do we build a completely radically virtual team? And especially a team that is super connected, high performance, high engagement, but not in the same office. Yesterday, we had a call with uh, one of our AI person. It did not work out. We worked with them for two months 
And in this case, a virtual office did not work. We could not understand each other enough. Now, he's based in Latin America, very smart mathematician. I don't understand most of what he's saying, but my, my colleague understands. But despite that, the magic of working together did not happen. I wanted to add that example to show that uh, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And in that case, it, uh, it, did not, uh, it did not work. There certainly is no substitute for the face-to-face, but that also is interesting, really, to how, how do you harbor that sense of camaraderie and teamwork from a distance? So maybe tell us a little bit about some of the early products uh, you've developed since, since the start of Laval. I know you have a big announcement coming on the heels of ASCO 2020. We'll get to that in a minute. But what, what are the, some of the first things you started working on? Our company works in healthcare. Healthcare and data is our field. We work for the pharmaceutical side of healthcare in particular. Often that's where the money is. Uh, pharmaceutical firms have, uh, have good budgets. And so over the years, we built our business selling data, uh, database, software to, to pharmaceutical companies. So we have uh, four products. Well, we had three, and then we have the new one that arrived. Uh, we sell competitive intelligence data. So we're a bit like a mini Bloomberg, a micro Bloomberg, focusing on commercial and pharmaceutical news. That's one business. We have a key opinion leader data business, and we have a medical conference data business. These are our three main businesses. And then we have the new one, which we'll talk about in a second. That certainly does sound like it's very important and useful uh, to those in pharma and now increasingly the diagnostics sector, which is, I think, a little bit of a shift for us. The need to keep up with uh, the literature conferences and the uh, key opinion leaders and so forth. You mentioned your background was rich in uh, computing and maybe even artificial intelligence. So could you tell us in, in your experience, what is the role of AI in, in all of this when we're faced, you know, just in tracking these data, the goings on at the various conferences and what the KOLs have said on this topic or that? What's your experience incorporating artificial intelligence into this analysis? First, I want to say I'm not an expert in AI, although my company uses AI and uh, I find it fascinating. I'm not an expert. And I also believe that actually the term AI became so broad uh, and includes essentially everything, anything from uh, deep learning, uh, the use of TensorFlow, for example, other types of big data approaches, and even Bayesian approaches, modeling, all of that falls into a huge umbrella. So AI became, it's like the term God. It, 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 it means everything and it means nothing because it's so broad. It, sometimes it's tough to talk about AI because it's such a broad umbrella. In our case, one thing we had to realize is that the type of data set that we're dealing with are not very big. And therefore, the type of AI that allows the teaching, uh, the training of a computer to recognize cats from dogs on 10 million pictures, for example, or predicting what we should say on LinkedIn when we interact with someone, that works very well. That requires huge data set. Often in medicine, we don't have these huge data sets. So as we work on our new projects, we're dealing with a kind of AI, frankly, that requires, do not require these uh, huge data set. Despite being such a hot topic, you can't really go anywhere in the healthcare sector without hearing about AI or how it's going to change change the world and certainly change what we do. 
Uh, we've had several guests on the podcast here so far, and I think one theme that has become very clear to me is that perhaps in the past, what people may have been focusing on was the idea of artificial general intelligence, which is this notion of robots or machines somehow taking on human-like qualities and being able to perform human functions. But I think it's become clear that really, at least in you know 2020, what we're really talking about is several more discrete and practical useful functions. I believe two of our previous guests classified it as the seven categories of AI, one of which was pattern recognition, the other was uh, like self-driving cars, I forget what the term was. In terms of what you do, do you see AI as more of a tool to crunch big data, or is there just something that is materially different about what AI can offer and what it can allow you to provide as a service at Lerval? The place where AI plays a role for us is mostly our new product, the one that we're going to talk about in a second. Traditionally, we haven't used much AI. But I want to make a comment about what you said about the seven types of AI, because I think it's fascinating. The whole idea of singularity, which I guess would be the eighth or the ninth or the tenth level of AI, I'm not sure. The idea that at some point, the machine, the computer, is going to be smarter than us. Sometimes I tell people, maybe, maybe singularity already happened and the machine is playing dumb, right? It's keeping us around. It already happened. And depending on what you call intelligence, if you think about the internet as a computer, arguably, in most definition of intelligences, the internet is smarter than us in terms of the computational skill, the calculation power, the knowledge, certainly. So in many cognitive tasks, singularity already took place. Now, in healthcare, there's an interesting type of singularity I find uh, relevant to our conversation, is that at which point medical singularity, in a sense. At which point will a physician rely on AI not to support a decision, but to make a decision? So it's a little bit like when you're driving with Waze. Initially, you double-guessed Waze. You said, no, Waze tells me to turn left, but no, I know better, I'm going to go straight. And each time, Waze was right. There was a reason why Waze told you to turn left. There's an accident, there is a too much traffic, there's something. What, what I think is going to be fascinating, and I believe it's going to happen, by the way, Joe, at some point in medicine, in one use case, we're going to rely on an AI to decide on a medical decision. That's already actually already happening in terms of image reading. But that's not, I'm not talking about diagnosis, per se. I'm talking about which drug to use, for example. You feed the AI with a lot of information about, about your patient, and the AI is going to tell you, uh, use that drug or do surgery. That's not happening yet. I think it will. And I don't think it's going to take 20 years to happen. That's going to be a fascinating situation. And I believe that's going to be a breakthrough. And increasingly, most of the medical decisions are going to be done by AI. Now, this is sci-fi. It's going to take maybe 10 years, maybe 50 years. But in 50 years, this is going to be the case. Um, Most of the medical decision are going to be done by AI. I think certainly that is going to be the future. And I I think it's even impressive that we've gotten this far, where I think AI is beginning or it's emerging to take on a large role and certainly will be in the next few years for decision support. AI is not going to make the decision, but it's going to offer support. And it's certainly going to help out in perhaps other areas that can facilitate workflows such as triage 
or administrative tasks as well. So I think we are seeing some actual real practical applications. Uh, so, so tell us about your big news. So you're launching a new, a new product coinciding with ASCO 2020. Tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. So uh, we actually, on, on Monday, uh, announced uh, a new product, which is called uh, Veri, Larvol Veri. And what it is, it's a knowledge base of, for precision oncology, for predictive biomarkers in, in cancer. So it's a little bit the, the idea of the ways that I mentioned earlier. In a sense, we have so many biomarkers now, especially with uh, next generation sequencing, uh, and it's going to continue to accelerate. In ten, imagine how many biomarkers we will have in five years or in 20 years or in 50 years. It's going to be, I mean, everybody's going to get sequenced, arguably, and you're going to have so much data. So if you look at that mega trend, it's becoming like we need a ways to figure out what's the best treatment and how much evidence is there that this drug versus that combination versus others makes sense for a given patient. So the promise of precision oncology is increasingly facing the number of mutations, the number of variants, including variants of unknown significance, what mutation for which we don't know what to do. We don't know what it means. The, this product is there to be the, essentially, ultimately, the, the ways, the, the Google map to guide precision oncology. I completely agree with you. I think we're right now awash in a sea of data. In many ways, you know, our ability, the technology to sequence patients has far outstripped our ability to analyze the sequence and determine the significance of what we of the variants that we do find. I think most people or many people would might be appalled that in fact most variants or first of all, once the human genome was sequenced, you know, everyone was very excited, but how are we gonna make sense of all this data and how can we even begin to appreciate the significance of these variants that we find unless they're tied to clinical outcome or some other measures? People may be surprised or appalled or alarmed to find out that variants are way more common than we ever thought, and that most variants are either benign or of uncertain significance, which may create quite a conundrum. You know, with this tsunami of data, I think it affects many, many, many aspects of medicine and patient care, one of which would be variant interpretation, but then certainly there's many others such as the development of new drugs, the development of new diagnostics, and then even areas such as, you know, regulatory concerns with the FDA, payers, how can we generate the appropriate levels of evidence to determine if this is worth paying for, and, you know, and then, and then taking it a step beyond that, you know, are we going to move out of the stone age of, clinical medicine so far where we're, it's kind of a, a one-off approach to testing. You're testing, you know, a single analyte to determine if you get a single therapy and you're doing that at one point in time. How are we going to get the complete picture to optimize care for a patient and realize the promise of personalized medicine? So how do you think your product and, and just this new method of analyzing data with artificial intelligence is going to play into that? An interesting point, based on what you said, is where are we in that mega trend? Are we at the very beginning? Has it really started becoming mainstream? To me, that's a, that's a very important question, uh, not only for, for us, but for all of the good companies and people working in that area. I, I like to look at long, long term, let's say in, in 100 years. 
in 100 years, we're still going to die. We're still going to die of cancer, actually, because cancer is such a special disease compared with everything else. It might be the last disease that we solved if we do solve it, because it's essentially just entropy. It's essentially a disease of the genome, a disease of information. It's going to be the last disease we solved. So I would say in 100 years, we're still going to die of cancer, but it's going to become chronic. So we would live 10, 20, 30, 40 years with a cancer. Everybody will have cancer or pre-cancer or had cancer in the past. So everybody on earth, certainly in developed countries, will be a cancer patient or pre-patient. And their disease, in my view, is going to be treated in a, in a computable way based on information. Why? Well, for two reasons. Number one, the amount of information about how cancer behave and drug response function with uh, these variants is going to continue to grow every year. I mean, at ASCO, probably half of the data is biomarker driven. So that's going to continue to accelerate. The other thing, and I know you talked about it in previous podcasts, is that sequencing is going to become much better. Think about the mobile technology. Magical things happen once mobile was cheap enough and high quality, so everybody had a smartphone. That was an inflection point. The same here is we need to have enough percentage of patients who will be sequenced. Next gener uh, generation sequencing needs to get cheaper enough and fast enough. The problem, as you know, is not just the cost, is that it takes two weeks. The patient doesn't want to wait two weeks. The doctor doesn't want to wait two weeks either to make a decision. Liquid biopsy and ctDNA, all of these technologies are going to change the situation a lot. The question is, how fast? Is it going to happen in one year or in five years or in 10 years? And that's going to create a mega trend. That's going to create huge opportunities for new companies and create a new value, including that whole concept of a AI-enabled ways of personalized oncology, which is the, the direction and the ambition that we have ourselves as a business. That's a good point. It kind of reminds me of this old joke in, in diagnostics. They say, well, what, what's going to be most important for you in a diagnostic test? And the uh, punchline is, well, a fast turnaround time. You know? <laughs> you know, forget about, you know, what kind of complex information you're going to be able to offer me. Just give me the basics and give it to me tomorrow. And I think that's an interesting point that really we need to be able to reach critical mass in terms of the number of patients that are, in fact, sequenced. I mean, certainly, like you said, at some point in the future, all patients will be sequenced for all tumors and, and diseases. When are we going to reach that inflection point is, is an interesting question. So what did you see as the unmet need in the marketplace when you envisioned uh, this, this product? I tend to think in terms of trend, more than pure unmet need. I mean, obviously, the amount of uh, money we spend on drugs that do not work and the amount of uh, uh, side effect we accept for drugs that do not work is tragic. And the number of patients who do not get a cancer drug because uh, we don't know if it's going to work or not, so we don't want to spend the extraordinary cost. Essentially, the promise of personalized medicine and personalized oncology in particular, and this idea that personalized medicine will first succeed in oncology. That's really the starting point for me. And the, the fact that oncology is a computational disease, a genome, disease of the genome, uh, makes it a perfect case for personalized approaches. In other words, 
if it doesn't work for oncology, we're not ready for personalized medicine. Let, let me make another point linked a little bit to the previous point you made. And it, actually, let me put it as a question for you, because you talk with a lot of super smart people in the field and a lot of high quality conversation. The question is, and I'm, I'm going to try to ask that question in a quantitative way. In the US today, which percentage of the patient, of the cancer patient, get sequenced? Whether it's a germline sequencing or, or biopsy sequencing, somatic sequencing. What, what would you guess it is? I, I'm pretty sure the data doesn't exist. And in, our, in my team, we did a survey about what it is. I'll tell you, it's quite silly a little bit, but what, do you, what would be your guess? Hmm. Turning the tables on me. I like that. Well, that's an interesting question because I guess, you know, since it certainly is not free yet, I mean, it's certainly the cost we hear is going to zero according to Moore's law. So it's, it's going to be getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And it's in the process of being democratized with companies such as uh, Perian DX and Tempest. But you have to be practical. And, you know, what are the current indications for sequencing and what will actually be reimbursed, you know? So I'll take the bait. I would say it's somewhere well less than 50% of patients that are getting sequenced, maybe uh, less than 20% even, I would guess. Wow. It's fascinating. Okay. So, uh, so I had four people in my team uh, discussing that topic. And the two, I would say, more senior one, me and my head of technology, uh, he's a PhD in uh, pathology. We said, I said 3%, he said 2%. And my, uh, our two other colleagues who are not as, uh, they maybe they're more optimistic, they said 25%. I want to find the answer. So we, we are on a mission to try to find the answer, but it's not easy. I'm wondering what 10% pure NDX think. And, but the, the reason why I'm thinking it's very low is what? Is that, of course, we talk about precision oncology and there are, there's research. But right now, the type of decision you need to do often do not require NGS in most cases. You can do a point test, an, an IHC or other kind of immunohistochemistry or PCR test. It's a guess, right? I don't have the data. My impression from a few conversations I had is that it's actually still extremely rare. Uh, outside of the large cancer centers, of course, as a comprehensive cancer center, a lot of research, they're going to incentivize a lot of their patients to get uh, an NGS. I talked with Curie, Institut Curie in France, two weeks ago, and they said that in their case, right, but again, it's like a, it's a, it's a research center, most, their, most of their patients are getting sequenced. Uh, so perhaps we'll, I'm too pessimistic with 3% and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure 50% is too high, but maybe it's, maybe it's 15%, maybe it's 20% even. I'd be surprised. My, bet, my adjusted uh, bet is 10%. Okay, that's interesting. I guess one thing I did not take into account was just disparities in care and health economic considerations and patients who are receiving sub, substandard care and so on. So I think, it, and generally with these things, it's probably generally going to be a lot less than you might think. So I, I, would, I would probably tend to agree with you. The point behind all of that, Joe, is that we are still very early. Think about like the mobile revolution huh? would be the NGS revolution. We are in the mid to late 90s, maybe mid 90s. It's rare to have a smartphone. Uh, maybe the, the, the Pond Pilot just arrived, if you remember the Pond Pilot. But uh, 
<laughs> but there's no iPhone yet. Now, speaking of which, uh, let's not be naive. I think you certainly have competitors in the space. So maybe could you tell us who you view? I mean, we're all friends here. Who can you view as your competitors? What have you seen them do? And what services do you see providing that the market doesn't offer just yet? Do I need to be nice or can it be uh, provocative? Certainly provocative. I have respect for foundation medicine and for flat iron. However, to me, if you get acquired by my friends at Roche, I like them a lot too, by the way, it's a little bit like MySpace getting acquired by Rupert Murdoch. You nearly cannot fulfill your promises structurally. And I hope they prove me wrong, but I don't hope they prove me wrong. It's possible that they prove me wrong, but my bet is that it's very hard if you're part of a pharma company, essentially, to provide a solution that is going gonna, is gonna to really change. It's a little bit like Airbnb being owned by uh, Hyatt or Marriott. Uh, or it's a little bit like uh, Barnes & Nobles acquiring a very early, very, very early Amazon. Would they have built Amazon the way it is? My bet is it's very hard. It's very hard to do. You've got these. Then you've got, of course, Tempus, Semaphore, Guardian, Prairie DX. I respect all of them. It seems that recently, Tempus, very ambitious, very exciting, of the Groupon, uh, Eric Levkowski, uh, Groupon um, uh, fame and, and ambition, which is um, super exciting. But it seems that they sort of said, now we're going to go after the whole healthcare, not just cancer. And to me, it's giving up. We haven't been successful in cancer yet, arguably. I mean, they, they do sequencing like the other. They have a database or variant like everybody else. But for them to say, we're going to go after all healthcare, it seems that they, they gave up on cancer. There's so much to do just in cancer. The computational problem and the precision oncology problem are so uh, real and so unique that if you go broad, it means that you're not going to make it in cancer. I, it's a bit of an intellectual shortcut. And for the other, I do respect them. I don't know too much about them. I know enough to, to respect them, essentially. Yeah, the, uh, the Semaphore, the, uh, the Guardian, the Prey and DX, who I know have been part of your podcast as well. Yeah, that's right. You know, the question to go broad across several disease types or to go deep into something specific like cancer. And certainly some of these companies are in a sense limited or in a sense need to be practical about the solutions they offer. So I realized that variant interpretation, you know, if you're performing sequencing is a big function, but you were alluding to that there's got to be a promise that's even bigger. You know, how are we going to tie this all together and truly realize precision medicine and to borrow a real estate term, speaking of Airbnb and so forth, what do you see as maybe the highest and best use uh, for your services? You mentioned variant interpretation in some ways, the need of variant of unknown significance. As a, as a non-scientist, I'm married to physicians, so I get a little bit of osmosis knowledge and I've got a a little bit of, of knowledge over the years, but I'm, I'm really a business person. Initially, I thought that the idea is to find the most mutation and just the more mutation you accumulate, the better. And you remember N of 1 that got acquired by Kiagen. So they would they accumulated maybe 100,000 verse variant of unknown significance and annotated them. 
And I know uh, Flat Iron has a bunch of them. I'm sure Tempest as well. I'm now starting to believe that that approach is not going to work. And the reason is that each time you look at a, at a mutation, at a variant, the likelihood that anybody sees that same variant again is nearly zero. Because the space of all of these mutations, or all of these variants, is so huge. It's a little bit like taking a grain of sand on a beach and saying, well, maybe I'll, uh, I'll put it back and the chance of finding that grain of sand again. There's, of course, common mutation, but the VUS, the variant of unknown significance, are so rare that knowing a few barely helps you. I feel that different approaches are going to be needed. And when you talk with variant scientists, so I interviewed a number of variant scientists uh, who are working in pathology lab. They, result, they receive the result of Illumina. Initially, they have maybe 100,000 mutations, variants. Then the Illumina software reduces it based on alignment, frequency, to maybe 30. Okay, 30 mutations, we don't know what they do. They mutation or fusion or what have you. And then what the, the variant scientist does, they essentially Google it. They, go, they look at the gene, and they try to look, look at the literature, and they try to guess whether or not these variants are likely to have a significance. Any software and tool right now is essentially supporting the variant scientist for that last mile. And, that's, and that last mile, what we realize, is that it's more art than science. And so taking something that is essentially art, well, not really art, but uh, certainly a, a high cognitive task that is hard to replace by a software. To us, that's one of the challenges in the lab setting, in the pathology lab, for variant scientists interpreting the result of a sequencing. So initially, to go back to the beginning of your question, initially, we're selling Larvolveri, our biomarker platform and CDX platform, actually, to pharmaceutical companies to understand what their competitors do, to design their trial, to find new biomarkers as well. Right now, we haven't gone after the pathology market. Now, we, 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 we probably will at some point. We want to make sure if we go in that market, we do it in a way that has a big, big impact. We don't want to be just one of the variant interpretation software. So that's essentially where we are in our, in our strategy. And then to borrow a, a phrase from another industry, there's this notion of the long tail. And I think that's kind of what you're getting at there, where in cancer, in terms of identifying the mutations, there's clearly the, the canonical or the hotspot or the deleterious mutations that are well-known and obvious. But then the number of mutations, particularly the uncertain ones and even the benign ones, kind of trails off. Uh, into infinity or the sunset, so it, it can become somewhat futile or perhaps more and more labor and, and resource intensive. And then you kind of really have to have to wonder how, how fruitful is this. So Bruno Lerval, thank you so much uh, for coming on. So before we wrap up, I just want to ask you, what challenges, what most excites you over the next 10 years? And then let me throw you a curveball. The flip side is what, what scares you and what do you think we need to be on the lookout for? My commitment is cancer and data. So I want to build the, the Google, the, uh, the Waze, the, uh, the Amazon, maybe, for cancer and data. That's my commitment. I feel that there is extraordinary potential in that field, and I'm committed to it.
and uh, and so I'm I'm putting a a wonderful team, a lot of energy, all of my hours towards that goal. What excites me the most is that uh, is the, the trend I mentioned earlier, which is if I look in ten years, and if I look at twenty years and thirty years, there is no doubt that we're going to have twice, three times, ten times, maybe one hundred times the number of predicting biomarkers and variants. And that the technology to measure it is going to continue a, a Moore's law curve or even more aggressive. Because if you look at how the cost of NGS went down, it's steeper than Moore's law. So that's what I'm excited about. I think we are at the very beginning. We're in 95 for mobile equivalent. So we are at the very beginning. It's always hard to know when things are really going to take off. For example, let me, let me say, are we in 95 or are we in 92? Right? In other words, is it the time where people are developing the Newton uh, from Apple or the Palm Pilot or the iPhone? All right? I think we are around, we're not at the Newton level and we're not yet at the iPhone level. Uh, we're more at the Palm Pilot handspring level. To me, that's what's exciting. The, the sense that there's a mega trend, an unstoppable trend in which a lot of wonderful activity, business, opportunity, ultimately to help patients exist. In terms of the biggest challenge in the field, healthcare by nature is different than the rest of tech. Healthcare is slow. <laughs> it's slow, well, first, it's slow at several levels. The science might be fast, but the clinical demonstration of utility is slow. It's very regular, uh, the reg reg regulatory heavy, and the payer system is also very slow. Changing the practice of medicine is sometimes very frustrating for people who have have seen how fast things work on the other sides of tech. So that's to me is the challenge, and my impatience uh, sometimes is with regard to these challenges. Well, our guest has been Bruno Lerval from Lerval. We'll see you next time on the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast.